Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I'm Samantha Bucktrout. She's a Senior Director of Research for the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. So we're going to talk about her work. So Samantha, thank you for coming. Thank you, Rich. Nice to be here. Well, tell me, what do you do at the Parker Institute? What's the focus of your work? The focus of my work, I'm an immunologist and the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy is a whole institute with lots of different experts across the space of of cancer, treatment of, of cancer using cancer immunotherapy. And as an immunologist, I contribute to that effort. And our goal is to bring curative immunotherapies to more cancer patients that currently receive that benefit. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that um, immune therapy is, uh, immunotherapy is becoming a, a big deal in cancer. Um, what's, what are some of the basic uh, premises of immunotherapy in general? And then I want to ask you about specifically your work. Yeah, great. So immunotherapy engages with the immune system, which is the body's own natural clearing house for cancer. So every day, just through the process of cell division, we get potentially pre and and cancerous cells. And our part of our immune system's job is to detect those cancer cells and then eliminate them. So in cancer patients, especially cancer patients that have failed on the uh, standard of cares like surgery or chemotherapy or radiation, what's happened in many occasions is that the cancer itself is actively blocking the immune system. You know, the cancer is part of our body and our body has an ability to regulate the immune system just naturally. And this is what the cancer co-ops So where immunotherapies have been shown success, 
up until now is that we we understand what those barriers are that the cancer puts up and we can block them with proteins, antibodies, large molecules. And there's such, because of the success that was seen in, in certain patients that were really had no other option. And, and these therapies not only extended the patient's life and gave them an improved quality of life, but they have long lasting disease control and we're seeing extensions of life past 10 years now. And, and I think this is why the field patients and oncologists are really excited is that we can use the word cure for some patients. And these are, you know, these are patients that have metastatic disease, for example, that's usually fatal. So this right. is the excitement and, and, and the field. We're engaged in really understanding those patients that don't respond and trying to help bring therapies to them. Yeah, do you know of, of anyone that's tried to characterize people's the state of their immune system before versus after chemo or radiation? And what are some of the hallmarks of how it changes? Right. Yeah, that's a great question, Rich, because chemotherapy does change the, the you know, the body in many ways. And what we're seeing is that different chemotherapies have different activity on the immune response. For example, we're, we're still trying to understand that better. Um, so some chemotherapies are thought to have negative impacts on the immune system, but some potentially could have positive. And that's really been seen in the way that they kill the cancer cells, making maybe the cancer cells appear more immunogenic or be more obvious to the immune system. And some chemotherapies, again, that we're, we're trying to understand better and use them better, can open up actually the, the tumor microenvironment and allow the immune system to go in there and be acted, activated in that space. So what we're seeing recently, some of the successes clinically are using combinations of chemotherapy with immunotherapy. That was a surprise to immunologists, but it's been a really nice surprise. So figuring out why and extending that is something the field's pretty much focused on right now. Yeah, because of the standard of care, is anyone allowed to just do immunotherapy without chemo, without radiation? Yes, yes. So, for example, for metastatic melanoma, that that is a an immunotherapy alone. So that's just a monotherapy with immunotherapy in the absence of chemotherapy. But if you look across to other spaces, like for example, tri- triple negative breast cancer, right now the approved standard of care is a chemotherapy plus immunotherapy combination. So what we're seeing is it's different for, for different tumor types. This is certainly not going to be a one, one shoe fits all approach and different cancer types will need a different approach. And then even different patients within a cancer type, potentially you know, having a personalized approach to their immunotherapy or their cancer therapy is something that's really, we think, going to bring promise. And that's something we focus very heavily on is understanding, you know, what are those signatures and how we can utilize them for, for that particular patient. Well, what are some of the ways in which you've seen various cancers evade the immune system? You know, biochemical level, what are some of the methods in which they do that or it does it? One of the mid, there's many, many ways and, you know, cancers are amazingly adaptable and plastic. So, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a constant battle between the immune system and the cancer. So there are many ways. So the first one is evasion, 
which basically means that the tumor hides from the immune system. So it downregulates key molecules that the immune system um, uses to see. These are the MHC, the major histocompatibility molecules that the adaptive immune system sees, can, sees any cell with. So those get downregulated. There's a bunch of inhibitory proteins that get expressed by the tumor itself. And I mentioned earlier, and, you know, these are naturally expressed throughout the body within and outside of the immune system to regulate the immune system. And those within the immune system function to try and prevent autoimmunity or out of control inflammation. And and those cancers that successfully evade the immune system really co-opt these. So there's the PDL1 path molecules that are that can be blocked now by the lead approved immunotherapy. That there are antibodies that block the PD1, PD, PDL1, and PD1 ligand interactions, and they're against either of those receptors. There's other ways the tumor as well, just in general, the microenvironment that shows to be pro-tumorgenic to support tumor survival and metastasis just naturally through that behavior as an anti-inflammatory, so therefore immune-suppressive microenvironment. So these include cytokines like tumor, transforming tumor growth factor, TGF-beta, um, is a pathway that seems to be very dominant in patients that don't respond to immunotherapy. Other suppressive secreted factors like IL-10, and then there are many ways to inhibit immune infiltration into the tumor itself. So, so there's a big blockage. These are physical factors like a stromal microenvironment and also um, no expression of chemoattractants that generally attract immune cells into tissues. So these are all some of the ways, but there are many, many more that we're, we're now figuring out how that we, how, what are the assays and, that we can use to detect these very complex, complex networks of immune regulation, and then how we can transform that information into what could be a therapeutic decision making for the clinician. Before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Any any idea on how cancer cells evolve these abilities to evade the immune system? And at what point do they do so? Is it you know, Have you observed it in very, very small early stage tumors or... You know, it's usually only seen clinically when uh, things are at a very late stage. You know, the latest theory and a theory that I I kind of support is like any evolution, a lot of it is by chance. It's by chance and by survival of the individual tumor cells. So, you know, tumor cells that have a high mutational burden, for example, 
have been they've been the ones that have tend to be responding to immunotherapy so far because they have very very broad and targetable immune response mechanisms that that we have defined and and you see this for example I I mentioned melanoma that tends to have a very uh, highly uh, mutagenic load so so that the idea there is that the cancer the tumor has evolved it's been seen by the immune system those that don't have immune suppressive mechanisms those tumor cells that don't have effective tumor um, immune suppressive mechanisms are detected by the immune system and deleted whereas those that do remain and of course their daughter cells then have that advantage so that's kind of one classification. It's just a natural evolution of the tumor that is a successfully acquired immune suppressive mechanisms. Other ones, a whole different bucket, are cancer types that actually have low mutational burden, but are, but are seen to actually grow in organs or in places that are naturally immune tolerant. So there's certain organs in the body that ha- that are are seen as um, immune privileged, we call them. So these are essential organs like the brain, like the pancreas, and like the the kind of the sex organs like the ovaries and the testes. And they already have naturally those those tissues have a huge immune defense already that, that really try and avoid immune cells going in there, causing inflammation and causing immune-mediated damage. And those are the tumour types that are very difficult, actually, right now, um, to treat with immunotherapy. And this is where the, the Parker Institute has been focused, because these tumour types have not seen success so far to immunotherapy. Therefore, there's not a lot of, of drug development focus within those tumour types. And we really see this is this is a place for government and non for profit funding is to tackle these types of tumors where patients aren't seeing a lot of benefit and and we think that you know the more that you understand that then the more that you can put forward proposals for therapies that that will have success there a lot of these tumors are able to evade the immune system but what about the person as a whole you know how do they respond to normal uh, insults you know the flu or colds or you know they get a cut they heal. I mean, what, what happens to the immune system with with other insults that come at them? Does it seem like the immune system works normally except in regards to the cancer? Or is it that uh, anything that happens to them causes them a problem because their whole immune system is suppressed? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Right, right. And, um, you know, the immune system. So, so maybe I'll stick take a step back for a second and just describe, for example, an antiviral response, because that's actually quite similar to an anti-tumor response when you look at the step-wise that's happened and the cells that are involved. So the, the, the kind of action end, an antiviral response from an immune cell is the CD8 T cell. Um, they detect virally infected cells and, and they kill, they directly kill the virally infected cell. And those are the same cells that are really important that are seen to be absolutely crucial for effective immunotherapy against tumors. It's the same thing the CD8 T cell detects a malignant cell, like a malignant epithelial cell in the case of an epithelial tumor and eliminates that cell. 
So in, um, in certain cancer patients, the whole immune system is kind of remodeled to be suppressive. We're still trying to understand the mechanisms of how that happens. But for example, you can look in the circulating white blood cells, the circulating immune cells in a cancer patient, in many cancer patients, and you'll see a high number of suppressive myeloid cells that are made from the bone marrow every day. These are constantly replenished. And it's quite an obvious biomarker of a patient that has cancer, especially end-stage cancers. There's a huge amount of these suppressive myeloid cells that are detected in, in the blood. And what those suppressive myeloid cells do is, is really shut down or, or really tame down the CD8 T-cell response. So yes, so on the base level, the, you know, the effector responses that, that really clear viral, virally infected cells or malignant cells, tumor cells are dampened down in some cancer patients. And you can see that broadly. Um, we don't truly understand the mechanism of how that happened. And again, we think from an evolutionary advantage of the tumor, it's co-opting this suppressive myeloid cell network because these are the cells that aid with metastases and a remodeling of the microenvironment around the tumor to allow the tumor to receive more oxygen and, and that leads to metastases. But it also has this ad- added benefit of suppressive of suppressing adaptive immune responses that have memory and that would clear otherwise clear the tumor. So at a simple level, some people that have cancer, their immune systems are dampened. Some are not. They seem mm-hmm. to be normal and are some mm-hmm. where they're heightened, you know, where other, you know, normal insults, there's an overreaction. I mean, do we see like all three type of uh, situations or just one or two of them? There is certainly another kind of side to the coin with immunotherapy. So as I described, immunotherapy is co-opting the immune response to break down these barriers that the tumor has put up. And the the therapies that I've mentioned so far that have been successful and are now approved therapies for end-stage patients, these uh, PD-1, PD-L1 pathway inhibitors even though that they are specific against these particular molecules, they are not specifically saying only the anti-tumor immune response must be activated in this case. What they do is they enhance all of the adaptive immune response just broadly. So the the negative side of this and and the immune-related adverse events that are seen in some patients is that they have an overt immune reaction that can cause some inflammation, that can potentially cause um, some autoimmunity in a minority of patients. So this is the, the, the kind of fine line that we're walking right now with immunotherapies is by boosting the immune response, we are going to sometime have broader activity against not only the tumor, but potentially against infectious agents. So so people, for example, are looking at these therapies now to maybe boost vaccine responses. For example, of course, the COVID, the anti-COVID um, vaccine field is, is looking for potentially new immunotherapy or new ways to boost patients that maybe aren't having the level of anti-vaccine response that we're hoping for. 
So these are the kind of examples. And again, the Parker Institute is not only looking on how we bring anti-tumor responses, but we also have programs to understand these immune-related adverse events for patients that have immunotherapy and see if we can start to tease out anti-tumor versus other broader immune responses. But I mean, before someone gets any given cancer therapy, you know, I know there's various cancers, but have people observed clinically, again, before any therapy, that some people's immune systems are suppressed Generally, some seem to be normal, and maybe some seem to be heightened. Is that, does that happen before any immunotherapy or chemo? Yeah, certainly the first one, absolutely, immune suppression. Then the second one would be normal. I can't think of an example right now where immune responses are heightened in cancer patients. But, you know, my disclosure as well is I haven't spent a lot of time doing research or work within the hematological cancers. So these are cancers of the immune system. So there may be examples there, but that is not my area of expertise. But certainly within the more in the solid tumor cases, I can't think of examples where we would say these patients have heightened immune responses. More generally, these patients have suppressed immunity. Yeah, the reason I asked is, um, you know, let's say you have a I don't know, cancer in your liver. I would think your body would normally act to try to get rid of the cancer. So it would recruit, you know, immunogenic resources. And if those resources can't be used, but let's say just locally, they're diverted away from the area. Maybe that's how the suppression works. I'm just speculating. Uh, maybe now you have an abundance of, you know, immunogenic factors and they're frustrated they can't be used. And then they go to other parts of the body and they're, they're overused because now there's an abundance of them. I don't know if that happens. I guess that's more of my question. You know, it's interesting. And I think that's a really interesting concept. And I love it that you did bring up the liver because the liver is a highly tolerogenic organ. And we are seeing that, that unfortunately, patients that have metastases that, that, that occur in the liver have what we think is a dominant tolerance that's against the the tumor that that spreads across the whole body. Um, So actually we're seeing, you know, on the level of specificity of, of immune responses, more of a suppression around that. And what seems to happen is with any progressive tumor, the more and more progressed a, a patient is, Unfortunately, there's been more and more mechanisms of immune suppression that has happened along the way. So what we're really tackling right now is what we call intrapatient tumor heterogeneity. So that's even saying within a patient, you could look at at different uh, areas of the tumor, whether that's within one organ are are within the metastatic sites and we see very different immune suppression mechanisms that are built within these different loci of tumor across the body. Not only do you see that the tumor uh, genomics can be different in these spaces, but we do believe there's a there's a link between the tumor genomics and then the tumor microenvironment and the types of immune suppressive mechanisms that are there. So we're seeing a huge variety even within a patient. Okay. Any insights on how uh, how cancers suppress the immune system? I mean, I know this is like a 
huge question, but um, are there particular ways that in which cancers do it, or does it seem to be myriad, myriad ways and it can't be pinned down so far? We can pin it down, but as I said, there's multiple, there's multiple mechanisms that we're seeing in one patient. So our struggle right now is we have a general idea about how the patient, uh, how the tumor is evading the immune response. But our question right now is how do you translate that to a drug treatment that's going to be successful for the patient? So right now, if you're looking uh, within the clinical trial space, if you look at the number, there's literally hundreds of immunotherapy trials, hundreds and hundreds of immunotherapy trials going on right now across every cancer type. And the whole focus for the field are combining different immunotherapies with each other, but also with things like chemotherapy, as we mentioned, radiation, um, whether you do that all at the same time, whether you um, stagger chemotherapy first and then come in with an immunotherapy and then follow with a different immunotherapy are all ways that there are hypotheses that are being built now that we then need to go and test in the clinic. So the question is, yes, we, I, I could give you a laundry list right now of 50 ways that the the, the cancer can evade the immune system and how we might target them. But then the question is, what do we do with this kind of menu of immunotherapies? How do we combine them to the one or the two or the three things that would work for that particular patient? So, so this is really our goal. You know, our goal is that oncologists have what we call a toolbox or a range of therapies that would be targeted therapies that would be immunotherapies that they could use for their patients. They would do uh, take a sample of the tumor and the blood of the patient and, and maybe get a whole landscape of what this patient and underlying biology is, and then have a rational way of providing therapies to that patient. So we're very much in that space right now. And, and that's the work that we do at the Parker Institute is the basic profiling using the, the latest technologies, deep bioinformatics, and then within the, the therapies, um, making partnerships with, with biotech, with pharma to have access to the best in class therapies and then looking within the early clinical trial space to how do you really translate all this information into a therapy that would hopefully bring benefit. Well, what's the pipeline look like? I don't know if you have any visibility into it, but are there a lot of therapies that are currently in clinical trials or is this something that's going to be maybe a decade before there's really any big, big time therapies coming out? Um, the pipeline's pretty huge, actually. When you look across the space, it's everything from small molecules to large molecules, to antibodies, to the new designed kind of large molecules. These are multi-specific antibodies that target multiple things within one molecule. And, and now really the new frontier and where we're seeing the most innovation as far as um, in the biotech world are the, the living drugs. So these are the cell therapies um, that there's huge advancement. So this is the lead out of the whole cell therapy space is taking a patient's own immune system 
So collecting the, the, the immune cells that are circling in, circulating in the peripheral blood or even taking, if there's surgical access to a tumour, isolating the immune cells that have infiltrated into a tumour, growing up these immune cells, whether you got them from the blood or from the tumour tissue, growing them up um, in, in the lab, arming them, making them as souped up as you possibly can by giving them all the growth factors and, and stimulus that they need to become strong effectors to be able to migrate into tumours and to be able to kill those tumours. And then also um, genetically engineering them with specific receptors that would detect the tumour specifically or would enable them not to be suppressed by certain checkpoints or certain immunosuppressive factors in the tumour. So this is the new area of drug development right now. And, and I think there's going to be a lot of benefit. We're already seeing benefit and there are approvals for these types of drugs in hematological um, cancers like B-cell leukemias. And, and so we're, we're really committed to, again, how can we bring these to the larger, larger cancer patient population, for example, solid tumours? Is there any... Uh... You know, the immune system has, I don't know, five facets or five types of immunity, just making this up. Um, is there any pattern in the the elements of it that get suppressed with various cancers or is it kind of all over the board? I mean, the, the immune system is not zero. It's still working, at least in some part, I guess, no matter right. what cancer. But what, is there any pattern, again, in what's left alone and what's suppressed? And does that is that helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. So where we're seeing, like I did mention that, that in cancer patients, you can see even in the, in the circulation. So systemically, there might be broad, there might be some level of inhibition because of these myeloid cells. But honestly, most of the action is at the, the, the tumor site itself. So for example, let's, let's use pancreatic cancer as an example. So within the tumor mass at the pancreas, at the primary tumor site, there, if you sample those tumors and you have a look, there are multiple mechanisms of immune inhibition there. There are, you know, receptors on the membrane of the tumor that shut down the immune response. There are secreted factors like TGF-beta that I mentioned earlier, IL-10. There are factors that mess up the metabolic the metabolic programming and availability of metabolites and essential amino acids that would be available to the T cells or the immune cells that would be in the space and need to proliferate and need energy to actually kill the tumor. There's an active inhibition of, of T cells even getting there through the whole remodeling of even non-malignant cells that, that support the network of the tumor. So remodeling of the, of the extracellular matrix of the fibroblasts, you get cancer-associated fibroblasts that are highly resistant to, T, to immune cell infiltration and immune cell activation. They're not malignant themselves, but they've been educated by the tumor to kind of put up a wound healing so it looks like in a way, um, it looks like a scab or a granuloma that the body would use normally to wall off an infection um, while, it, while it heals a cut. 
this is what the tumor co-ops. Um, so you see this myriad of, of, of different different factors that for the pancreatic tumor to have a successful immunotherapy, we have to tackle the extracellular space and the tumor itself to get a successful immunotherapy in there. Very good. Samantha, what's the best way for people to find out more about Parker Institute and your work? Where can they go? They could go to the Parker Institute, parkerici.org. That's www.parkerinstitute.org. We're also very active on social media. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, all the usual social media sites. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Samantha, thanks for coming. And uh, I'm hoping the next, you know, five, 10 years, we'll, we'll have a lot more of these therapies in the clinic and in use because, uh, yeah, as you referenced in the beginning, if some of them are actually curative, that's amazing. So that would be great. Yes, absolutely. And we are seeing that for some patients right now. Um, over 10 years, curative immunotherapies. And we, we, our goal is to extend that to more patients. So thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.